0: God has opened a channel of communication. We call that channel prayer. When we pray, it doesn't have to be a perfect delivery. After all, sometimes when we pray, we are at the very end of ourselves. It can almost become a stream-of-consciousness kind of thing, a term that was invented by, uh, among others, uh, James Joyce near the end of his writing career, but which C.S. Lewis jokingly referred to as steam of consciousness. So, you know, sometimes when we pray, we we steam, and that's okay. God hears our prayers. Prayer is always pleasing to God, and prayer is always a good thing. But with that said, Jesus has taught us much about prayer. And in this morning's passage, which will be in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, uh, Jesus taught us not only how to pray, but what to pray in the form of the Lord's Prayer. In terms of context, this was right in the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. So before we get into the details of this morning's passage, the high point of which will be the Lord's Prayer, let us read the passage as a whole. Here, then, is the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. We'll take this passage step by step. As I indicated earlier, there are two big components of this passage. Jesus teaches us how to pray, and Jesus teaches us what to pray. And so we're going to begin this morning with the first part of this passage, which is the how. Repeating verses 5 and 6, What can we learn from this passage? There are some obvious things, and then there is one thing which is quite a bit deeper. First, clearly, we should not pray in order to impress others. When Jesus instructs us to pray in secret in this context, he is not saying that all prayer is in secrets you know some prayer for example is is public and the specific case of Jesus for example uh he prayed in public you know at the uh <clears throat> feeding of the 5000 in Matthew 14 and he also prayed in public at the, at the feeding of the 4000 in in Matthew 15 and of course the uh the parallel passages in Mark and Luke as well, but Jesus also frequently prayed in private. In fact, in fact, where we hear most about Jesus praying is in uh, the Gospel of of Luke. In uh, Luke, mentions uh, no less than eight times where where Jesus went off to pray. But one thing about prayer: prayer, by definition, of course, is talking to God, and we pray differently when we are in the company of others than we do when we pray privately you know for for example when when we are in in small groups you know our you know the prayers that we pray with one another uh are are different than than maybe some of the deepest most most private issues that that we would bring before the lord when we when we pray in in secret when when we pray alone and yet I can I can tell you you know that I felt the Holy personally I felt the Holy Spirit's presence tremendously you know you know praying within the context of of a small group or even 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 praying with other men for example in the context of an elder meeting i really felt the Holy Spirit present so both are good and interesting thing about These two verses, verse 6 in particular, is there is one significant phrase there. Uh, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Just what is meant by the phrase who is in secret. That phrase expresses the the genuineness of that which is inward and unseen as opposed to what is put on for the purpose of others. How do we know that that is what that expression means? It's because the same phrase in the Greek occurs also in The book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, which reads as follows. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from god the point is is when we say that god is in secret we mean that god is genuine god has no need to put on airs and indeed he doesn't and so when we pray especially when we pray one on one with god we can we can be wholly genuine and that's where jesus is going with these verses And then moving on to verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We shouldn't go through the motions of prayer repeating words from memory just for the sake of doing it. Prayer is not a work. It is is not a means to righteousness just by spending X amount of time during the day praying. The Father wants us to pray deliberately with our hearts and minds focused upon him. We are to pray on the basis of faith that the Father knows what we need even before we ask him. Faith or trusting in God is the true basis of prayer. And with that said, we must acknowledge that there is always something inherently mysterious about prayer how can god answer how can god answer our prayers when a he already knows what we need and b when he already can see into the future we just have to accept that as a mystery we may understand it when we get to heaven but there's no guarantee even of that Prayer is, by its very nature, mysterious. And this brings us to the second part of this passage. Jesus teaches us how to pray, and Jesus teaches us what to pray in the form of the Lord's Prayer. Moving on, then, to verse 9. Pray, then, like this. Our Father in heaven. I'm going to pause here for a moment because that is profound. One of the challenges of thinking through the Lord's Prayer is we pray it so frequently that it can become rote. But as we take it apart, verse by verse, clause by clause, we come across things that are utterly profound. And he starts with the very first phrase. This must have startled Jesus' disciples when he said this. For in Judaism, calling God as Father was something that just was not done in fact observant jews even today do not pronounce the tetragrammaton yahweh they will always substitute that with adonai which means lord nevertheless God as the father of Israel is an idea that has been revealed throughout the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Exodus, in some of the very first words that Yahweh gave Moses to tell to Pharaoh, this is what we read. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go and serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so we can see the fatherhood of God right near the beginning of the Old Testament and indeed throughout the Old Testament. But what changed? The, the relationship, however, as a result of sin throughout the Old Testament, that, that parental relationship, perfect parental relationship, if, if you would, became imperfect. It became broken as a result of sin. But when Jesus came into the world, everything changed. And so we read in the prologue of the Gospel of John, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received them, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then we read in in Romans, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father that's romans 8:15 there's a similar passage in galatians 4:6 so being able to start a prayer by saying our father that that is a profound privilege that speaks volumes literally the 66 books of the bible about about the nature of God in the relationship that he desires to have with us. And yet we say that with a heart of worship. Saying in heaven acknowledges that God is God, holy and separate from us, even though he graciously permits us to address him intimately as father. And one of my favorite passages in this context comes from Isaiah 57:15, And I'd like, like you to take this a minute and turn your Bibles to Isaiah 57, because this is an especially important verse in, in understanding how this plays out. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy? I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Wow. You can, you can just see how it all comes, comes together there. And that's why we can pray, that's, that's why we can address God who is in heaven, who is the creator of the universe and all that is in it. Why, if we are contrite and lowly, we can address him as our Father. That's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer then consists of three clauses about God and his Lordship, and then there will be three petitions. The prayer continues, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means being known, acknowledged, and honored as holy. But what really does holy mean? Holy is the biblical word for all that makes God different from us. In particular, his awesome power and purity. Therefore, we are praying that God's name would be perceived and honored by all people as holy. And then in verse 10, your kingdom come. We are praying for God's kingdom on earth, or equivalently, that all people would recognize God as king. The coming of God's kingdom was inaugurated by Jesus' life, death on the cross, and the resurrection. However, that will not be completed until Jesus returns again. So here we are in this already but not yet period of salvation history, and there is the longing for completion. There is the longing that that the kingdom would come. And what really is that longing for? that longing is to continue, verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This tells us what God's kingdom should look like. We will no longer be in rebellion, as we have been since the fall. Rather, we will all live in accord with God's will. In Jeremiah 31, and in Ezekiel 11, and in Ezekiel 36, we've got these famous, famous passages where God promises to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and to write it onto their hearts. And this is the way it will be. And this is what we are praying for now in the Lord's Prayer. These are the first three clauses about God in his worship. There is something interesting about this. I'm going, going to read to you now from a Jewish prayer that would have been recited in the temple even during uh, Jesus' time. This is called the uh, the Kaddish, and it it still is one of the three central prayers in Jewish worship, along with the uh, Shema and the Amida, And here is an early version translated from the Aramaic, which would have been current at the time of Jesus. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel, speedily and soon, praised be his great name from eternity to eternity, and to this say, Amen. This sounds a lot like the first three verses of the Lord's Prayer, but there is one huge difference. What is strikingly different is that Jesus teaches us to address the Lord as our Father. And so the Lord's Prayer uses the first person, actually the first person plural, as we'll mention later, rather than the third person. This intimate relationship is deeply woven in to the lord's prayer the lord's prayer is is a pattern of of how we should pray in general and it is always appropriate to begin our prayer with worship or praise because if it's if it's between God and me, God is worth everything, and I am worth nothing. And the needs and petitions that I'm likely to, uh, to lay before the feet of God pale in comparison with his majesty and his glory. So we always begin with praise and worship whenever possible. If we forget to do so, it's not the end of the world. God, who is there for us, will still hear our prayers, but it's good to begin with praise and worship. And this brings us to the second part of the Lord's Prayer, which are three petitions for our own needs. We begin, give us this day our daily bread. There is a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer, of course, in Luke chapter 11, and the corresponding verse in Luke is, Give us each day our daily bread. And so these two verses are are complementary to one another. Uh, There is a word in Greek here which is translated as daily, and it only appears in these two verses in the, in the whole Bible. And so it's, it's a little bit difficult to translate. But modern word study would render verse 11 as give us this day our bread for tomorrow. This verse uh, would have resonated with Jesus' audience because it harkens back to God's provision of manna in the desert both daily and tomorrow on the day before the Sabbath. In in Exodus 16, verses four to five, we read, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not on the sixth day, day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. You can see see both aspects, both both versions, uh, both Matthew's version and Luke's version encapsulated right there. But this verse in general acknowledges our dependence on God for all of our routine needs. And the significance of of the word daily uh, is even greater when we think about the Lord's Prayer in the context in which Jesus gave it. Uh, Laborers in Jesus' time were paid for their wages, one denarius, specifically, daily. And... It was, it was a, for the worse, it was a totally male-oriented economy. It, it was an economy that, uh, that didn't have you know, you know, some of the fancy insurance policies that we have right now. And so a few days' sickness for a laborer in Jesus' day could be tragic. And things are different now, but there are there are still events in our lives that that can be tragic. Think, for example, of the of the number of people, you know, you know, per, you know, in in the food industry, for example, that lost their jobs, you know, during during the the COVID pandemic, you know. So so, as relevant as this verse was in Jesus' day. It is relevant to us today. Moving on then to verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The use of debts here, this is a literal uh, translation from the Greek and, and the King James Version and most modern translations Use that word. However, the familiar version of the Lord's Prayer, which inst- which interestingly you know comes from uh, the Anglican or Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer, uh, uses trespasses in place of debts, and we'll see that in verses 14 and and 15 debts are trespasses and they they really always have been uh, they actually started doing this in the book of common prayer replacing debts with trespasses in the version of, of 1662 so it's the Lord's Prayer has been that way for a long time and Jesus will explain a lot more about uh this verse as we get to verses 14 and 15. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about forgiveness there. And then the, the last of the three petitions is in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Think about that. The verse on the surface may come across as a little bit troublesome or perhaps a little bit misleading because God would never lead us into temptation. So why would we pray to God that he not lead us into temptation? The meaning here most likely carries the sense allow us to be spared from difficult circumstances that would tempt us to sin. And the other important thing is that the word for temptation here in the original is, means the same thing as the word for test. And we know that as a part of our Christian lives, God frequently tests us. And we know that this is a good thing. But we also know that when we're being tested by God, it's no picnic. I mean, it's rough. It's rough. And occasionally, occasionally we fail. And God has our back. But we Pray to succeed, and with within the context of of this this testing, uh, God also promises that He will always provide us a way out. Right? That's 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 what we read in First Corinthians uh, chapter ten verse verse thirteen. Right? God will. God will always, in fact, I'll, I'll go there right now. I think it's an important enough verse that we can actually actually go there and take a look at it. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And think about this within the context, then, of the Lord's Prayer. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. A helpful way to think through this verse is, remember, uh, the, the, uh, the, word, the, the, the word in Greek means both test and tempt, testing and temptation, Testing is what God does as, as he forms us as Christians. Temptation is what Satan does. And however, the two are very tightly connected because, because you will remember that before Jesus began his ministry, he was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tested by Satan, right? so. You know, what, what we're asking, you know, is uh, is this testing that life throws at us, it's rough. And and, and and we're we're asking for we're asking for relief from that. And it's this is okay because this is precisely what Jesus did when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know? And and he prayed to the Lord, uh, if it be your will, lift this burden from me, but not my will, but yours be done. We are all tested, but we pray ourselves through these tests. Generally when we when we recite the Lord's Prayer, we conclude the Lord's Prayer with, with a doxology. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever, Amen. This doxology was present in the manuscripts that were current at the time that that the King James was translated, the the so-called uh, Textus Receptus uh, of Erasmus, but modern textual study has shown that that th- that the doxology was not present in the earliest manuscripts it is nevertheless an appropriate and fitting way to end end the prayer and we'll say a little bit more about that in the application section moving on then to the to the end of this passage jesus Teach us a little bit more about forgiveness. And if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Verses 14 and 15 are very similar to what we uh, studied in detail this morning in LDC in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. The logic is this. And the nice thing about the parable of the unforgiving servant is everything is expressed in terms of monetary Debts, uh, you know, you know the, the, the first servant was was forgiven a debt of of ten thousand talents. A talent, which is twenty years labor, is just nominally. Uh, if one year of labor is say fifty thousand dollars, a talent is nominally about a million dollars. So, ten thousand talents would then be. Ten thousand million or ten billion dollars just a, just an inconceivably large debt. this is the debt of our sin that that God forgives it is it is an un, it is a debt that we would never be able to pay on our own and and so the logic here is it if if God forgives the greater debt, then we ought to be able to forgive the smaller debt. We ought to be able to forgive those who sin against us. It's sometimes a journey Sometimes forgiveness is difficult. I can I can think of examples of where it has taken people nearly a lifetime to forgive. Uh, I I can th- I can think of really ugly situations like uh, like childhood sexual abuse, for example, that are just and just unspeakably evil and yet and yet the, the, the forgiveness can happen and, and part of the lord's prayer is that we pray to be able to to be able to do this forgiveness is is not necessarily an easy thing saying i'm sorry is not the same thing as asking for forgiveness one more time. Saying I'm sorry, simply saying I'm sorry, is not the same thing as asking for forgiveness. Uh, the late J. Adams uh, wrote, and he wrote this in several places, but I mean, I mean, he wrote over 100 books, so we'll, we'll forgive him for that. This, this is what he said about saying I'm sorry and forgiveness. Saying I'm sorry only tells another how you feel. It asks him to do nothing about the offense. When you say, I have sinned against God and he has forgiven me, now I want to confess that I have also sinned against you. Will you forgive me too? You ask for a decision on his part. When apologizing, you keep the ball in your own court. When you seek forgiveness, you toss the ball to the other party. He must now do something with it. When he says, I forgive you, he makes a promise, which is what forgiveness is, never to raise the matter again. He promises not to bring it up to you, nor to anyone else, nor to sit and brood on it. The matter, he assures you, is closed. A promise can be made whether one feels like it or not. A promise can be kept whether one feels like it or not. This is what our forgiveness looks like. So an important thing about forgiveness is that, is that when God forgives us, God makes our sins go away. We can't do that as human beings. So when we forgive, it means something different and i think that this uh, quotation from j adams does a very good job of articulating exactly what it means it means that we promise to put the matter aside and to not even think about it to not bring it up and to not brood about it we just we just take it to the foot of the cross Just a few application points before we close. In the Lord's prayer, Jesus taught us to praise and worship the Lord before addressing our own needs. And in Luke 22, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane shortly before he was arrested, "Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." By worshiping God first, in our prayers, we enter into a spiritual, holy place where we can humbly give our own petitions to the Lord. And in the example of Jesus praying in Gethsemane, as he laid his petition before the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, he knew that, that it's the Lord's will that would, that would trump his own and so as we begin our prayer with praise and worship it brings us into that holy place where we can can connect with that important idea uh, that it's ultimately it's it's about god it's about god's will and it's about god's glory second application point uh <clears throat> the lord's prayer uh the, the lord's prayer as i mentioned is Written in first person, however, the Greek is first person plural. It is inherently a communal prayer. Uh, uh, <clears throat> it is all right, however, to recite it personally, uh, or even in secret, as as verse eight teaches it. But here's the thing: we can use the Lord's Prayer as a template for our own personal prayers. And so we start with the Lord's Prayer and we work our personal petitions in, in into the Lord's Prayer. And and if, if we do that, if we if we do that that sincerely, we will we will never go wrong. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, not all aspects of prayer are included in this pattern. For example, there's no explicit can Confession of sin, there's no direct thanksgiving for blessings already received, and there's no intercession for the needs needs of the world uh, or the, the needs of the missionaries that we're sending. You know, you know there, are, there are things that are, are explicitly m- missing from the Lord's Prayer that can easily be, be worked in into the template if, if we do so thoughtfully. As, as I mentioned, uh, the doxology in the Lord's Prayer was not originally part of the earliest uh, Greek texts of Matthew's and, and Luke's Gospels. However, uh, the version that came down to us through uh, through Textus Receptus is based upon the great doxology in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 through 13. And and I would love to end this morning by reading that great doxology to you. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, even even as we pray this morning, we 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 praise you for your word. We, we praise you for both teaching us how to pray and teaching us what to pray in, in Matthew's gospel. Heavenly Father, as we as we mature as Christians and as our prayer life matures, We pray, Heavenly Father, we praise you that you will continue to hear our prayers. And and, and we, we pray that as we grow as Christians, as we are sanctified, that our prayer lives would grow with us. We pray these things, all these things, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.